0: Welcome to the Faith Recovery Podcast, everyone. This is where we seek to recover from bad ideas about God and recover what is truly good and wonderful about the gospel and about the Christian life. And we are in a series, a deconstruction series. And the goal here is to share our own deconstruction stories or faith recovery stories to give our listeners a sense of who we are and where we're coming from. And then those stories will provide launching points for important discussions we want to have, things we think relate to uh, concerns our listeners have. Last time on the Faith Recovery Podcast, we heard from Alex. We heard part of his journey where through ministry failure, he learned that his faith and his identity are not measured by what he's doing for God in church ministry, but how God is more interested in doing a work in us rather than us working for God. We heard from Kent about part of his journey to deconstruct a false self and let God change his heart versus making a good show of being spiritual. And then last week, uh, we wrapped up with Nathan, uh, just beginning uh, to his story with a provocative line. He said, the Bible is not a reliable way to define the Christian faith. That's a great place to start.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Um, and I, you know, who knows if I'll amend that, but it, I, it's just the way I, I can articulate it at the moment. Uh, so I, I, I talked about going from uh, the Baptist Church and kind of a nom- nominal participation there, in, and then into um, this little Church of Christ. And um, what appealed to me was that they were they were saying that it, you know it doesn't matter what my opinion is, or what your opinion is, and, and that we just need to follow what the Bible says, and that was appealing, I, you know, as we're talking about the idea of deconstruction, um, can kind of deconstruct it, I guess, for me, that that movement was, um, it was called the Restoration Movement, as, as it began, and that I, I would say that that was a pretty large-scale deconstruction movement, that the whole... Uh, United States, I think, was a place of discovery um, and that it needed a, a religious expression that was uh, pioneering. Um, and so people like Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, who who started what was known as the American Restoration Movement, um, from which came Disciples of Christ, Independent Christian Church, Christ, uh, Church of Christ, and perhaps some other odd variants out there, um, they they were really trying to say, well, you know, um, we're in a new land, I, we're we're breaking ground into new frontiers, uh, and and let's ask what what sort of unhealthy things did we inherit um, religiously from from the world around us and from our forebears? Uh, you might think of it as a, a con- continuation of the Reformation as. Um, this notion of sola scriptura, which, which probably meant something different to the Reformers than it did to someone like uh, Alexander Campbell, um, but uh, they had this notion that if we only just followed the Bible, that we would understand it alike. Um, this was in the Enlightenment, and there was a lot of faith in uh, human intellectual powers, and so uh, a couple of that with, uh, I think, a very sincere belief in a, in a God who is good and faithful. Uh, there's this notion that, that God wrote the Bible to us, and if that's the case, then we can understand it. And if we understand it, we will all understand it alike. And so uh, that, was, that was appealing to me, and I, I was thinking, yeah, you know, why, I, I had seen so much what, what appeared at least to be, and I, and I think probably legitimately so, was the influence of, of human thinking and innovation in, in the church that I had been a part of. I mean, I knew there was no book, chapter, and verse for lock-ins, pizza parties, or volleyball um, programs and stuff like that. And so to, to be in a, in a group that said, well, we're going to strip all that away and we're going to try to just do what the Bible says, Um, that was appealing to me, and and I think there's a degree to which it was a a deconstructing of what I had received, and um, I honestly faced some persecution from my family for changing churches, um, and and so for me it was very much kind of a a refining and a defining moment to join that group. Um, But what, what I discovered was that you know what sounds great on the surface is that you should define what you believe by the bible and only by the bible began to run pretty quickly into some major snags um, especially as i encountered um, passages that seemed to have been overlooked by the church that I was a part of you know they would say stuff like well we just want to do what the Bible says and that's why we're here and if you find anything that we're not doing tell us because we want to do what you know what God wants and we're not trying to maintain the party line or you know be a part of a of a creed or a denomination and so um, that was the mantra and that was what was appealing and Thankfully, they, you know, they made this demarcation between the Old Testament and New Testament so that, you know, I could still eat pork and all of that. I mean, trying to keep up with the entire Bible um, would, is just not feasible, I don't believe, at least not in a pluralistic society like the one that we're in. But you know even if you go to the New Testament and you read uh, a passage like First Corinthians 11, um, I won't read the whole thing, but, but it basically says that you know a woman should cover her head when she prays or prophesies, and that a man must not cover his head when he does the same. And then so there's this distinction made and I, and, and we were really big into church procedure. We kind of believed that God wrote the New Testament to give us the blueprint for how church should operate and churches that operate according to that blueprint were ordained by God and accepted by Him. Churches that didn't were false religions and that those people were all going to be condemned in the end. And so it was a pretty absolutist mentality, but uh, if, if your claim to fame is that you are checking all of the boxes of the New Testament procedurally as a church, um, then, you know, those boxes tend to proliferate and multiply. Uh, The more you check, the more you find. And so I found a box that they'd missed, and in my opinion, uh, when it came to the covering of the heads, and um, I was uh, kind of discounted and dismissed and silenced and um, couldn't really get a great explanation as to why the women in our churches didn't cover their heads when they prayed. And... uh, the the New Testament also says that if somebody won't do what the apostles say, that we should um, distance ourselves from them, that we should call them out, we should mark them as a heretic, and that we should um, then shun them going forward until they learn to repent. Uh, so. What I, what I also discovered is is that every group finds their level of inconsistency and they baptize it. And this group had, had this, you know, they, they were saying that they wanted to do everything the New Testament said, but th- what they meant was they wanted to do everything that their forebears said the New Testament said. Um, and now here I am coming with passages from the New Testament, and it's super uncomfortable. Um, long story short, uh, we... I, I was working with a confederate at the time, somebody who would back me up in all of my wild-eyed notions, and had his own wild-eyed notions. And he and I, along with our poor wives who just were along, you know, sadly for the ride, um, we we shut down a church. Um, yeah, that was fun. Uh, and um, but what but what else could we do, right? Uh, because we believe that you have to follow the New Testament to be. Uh, a faithful Christian and the New Testament says women should cover their heads when they pray and the New Testament says that if somebody won't do what the apostles say you need to um, call them out publicly and shun them going forward and when you do that it tends to um, undermine the cohesiveness of the church so I discovered that it didn't work and frankly people who say that they should follow the New Testament have not really tried to do that all the way. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, yeah. Maybe explain a little bit from about how you went from shutting down at church to come, <laughs> coming to the conclusion that um, the whole thing didn't really work.
1: That maybe sure. it was a house of cards. You took it to the logical extreme. And right. Yeah. yeah. So um, in the midst of this, we were also knocking doors. Me and this friend uh, Uriah. He goes by the name Uriah now. Maybe we'll have him on. That'll be a hoot. Um, and uh, and he and I were knocking doors because uh, not only were we like the only two to four people going to heaven in all of Northwest Arkansas, but uh, God would surely hold us accountable for, for keeping that secret. So uh, we were knocking doors every day, two to four hours a day, on top of being part-time employed and a full-time student, newly married. We were knocking doors every day and I remember at one point uh, Uriah literally shouted through someone's screen door, "You're going to hell!" <laughs> so that if that gives you a sense of, of our message at the time, um, and uh, and and so that was the challenge. But in the midst of that, what I what I reached was the end of myself. I trying to earn my way to heaven by keeping up with absolutely every New Testament command, example, and necessary inference became untenable. And I remember uh, being on the phone with Uriah, and he, he called, and we were always discovering Bible verses that were the final thing. Man, this is going to change it all. This is the Bible verse we missed, you know. And, and, and so he called me all excited about a Bible verse, and, and uh, it was 1 Corinthians 1.27, uh, this idea that the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, and he said, man, it, it's Christ in you. That's what we've been missing. And I, our beliefs didn't believe that, that God, the Holy Spirit, or Jesus actually dwelt in us um, we didn't have space for God because we were too busy keeping up with the Bible. So uh, he he had retired somewhere around um, 89 A.D. Um, <laughs> and uh, and had left us with this book. And and so as he's telling me this, I'm like, I don't you know, I don't know what you mean. But and and I told him I was on the phone and with him and, and I just said, man, I don't have energy to think about this right now. Um, and he and he said, "Man, this this doesn't take energy; it gives it something's different." And I'm like, "Yeah, let's just talk tomorrow." Um, and so we got in the 1973 Mercury Monarch and went out to the poor people apartments. And we're sitting in front, about to knock doors. And I turned to him and I just said, "Man, I, I can't do this." And he said, "It's Christ in you. It's Christ in you." And I, and I was stuck because I was um, I. I was so exhausted that I just couldn't do it anymore, but I knew that I was going to go to hell if I didn't. Mm. So in that in that desperation, I um entertained the notion that Jesus dwelt in my body. That um I was essentially a meat puppet. <laughs> <laughs> and and um and in that you know, in activating my imagination in that way, I I remember just kind of you know, reaching up, grabbing the latch, and that 500-pound door swinging open in that car, and me kind of half-tumbling out and staggering toward this apartment, and this guy was coming out. You know, before we could get to his door, he was coming out toward us, and he was obviously on, I don't know, multiple drugs. Uh, he, he was really incoherent. He was sweating. Um, we had talked about... I don't know what we we said we were there to talk about, but obviously the the notion of hell came up because that was a popular topic for us, I guess. And and he said, yeah, I've been to hell. It was man, it's like nothing you have's worth anything, you know. And and previously I'd have been like, man, this guy's a waste of my time. But what I found was a real compassion for this person. That that there was something that what was something dropping away. This need to somehow convince him of something. And in its place was this unconditional love that was surprising. And as we continued walking around, I mean, we obviously didn't bring lead that guy to the Lord or anything. I don't even remember what happened to him. As we continued walking around, what I what I discovered was that there was just so much compassion in my heart for people, and genuine love that was stirring up, and and a sense of fellowship with with God who had been very distant and. um And I remember at one point, as we were walking across the common area of these apartments, I turned to Uriah and I said, you know what, all of a sudden, I don't care if somebody wants to worship God with a piano or not. That was taboo, if you know anything about the Church of Christ. And and he said, yeah, I I don't either. (laughs) 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 Um, But, uh, you know, as I think probably happened with the Apostle Paul, um, it took a while for my... Uh, theology my hermeneutic to catch up to that experience hmm. but um,
2: something something happened there so yeah. this whole idea of Christ being in you dwelling in you that um, mm-hmm. was kind of like the switch you you described it as like a, a latch on a heavy door opening up and and yeah. after that something's different and you start feeling compassion for these people that maybe previously you only felt condemnation,
1: <laughs> right, right, disdain, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Well, there was this. Uh, w- the way I describe it is, is that I had been, you know, everything I read in the New Testament became a separate instruction, command, injunction to keep up with, um, and so I, I really depicted as as trying to carry around a bunch of puzzle pieces, but you know, there's so many and they're so unwieldy, and as and when one would fall and I'd reach down to pick it up. Three would drop out of my hands, you know, to pick it up. I was in this constant battle to keep up with all of these, this litany of disparate instructions. And, um, in that moment, what, what happened was is that someone just showed me the box top. Um, and I saw that all of these disparate pieces fit one cohesive picture who was Jesus. Um, and, and that changed my view. But, as with the puzzle, it took a while. It changed your experience. It did, but it, it took a while for me to catch up with that. It actually originally that um, that encounter energized the legalism, especially with regards to the the head covering, the veil, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was actually after that experience that we uh, shut down the church. So it's messy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the midst of that, uh, there there in was planted the seed of of a new experience. So this is why you say the Bible, this,
0: this, that's the background story for your statement, your provocative statement. The Bible is not a reliable way to define the Christian faith. Yes. You had been trying to do that and uh, had been exhausted by it and saw that it was an endless uh, effort. Right. And uh, that you could never complete.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And Uriah had this insight. Right. Yeah. Of the gospel, mm-hmm. it's Christ in you. Right. Yeah. And that's what was freeing.
1: Sure. But like I said, we continued to press the issue. Um, we shut a church down. We started meeting in our house for a little while. Then we started going to a different church, and this among the same sect of the Church of Christ. They were highly wary of us, obviously. Uh, when we went there, we had conversations with their leadership, and uh, I, I remember the. Um, the the guy who had been the preacher there, and he moved off, but he came back to help them navigate our existence. And um, uh, and he asked, you know, I, and we were talking about, he, he was saying about Romans 14, he says, why can't you just be tolerant when people disagree with you and stuff like that? He was pretty progressive for that group. And, and I said, well, you know, it's because this is something that's commanded in Scripture. And, um, but then we were talking about how, in you know, in the New Testament, Paul wouldn't let somebody require somebody else to be circumcised, and um, and I said, well, the problem with that was is that they were making that uh, a requirement that really kind of displaced grace, uh, and 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 the former pastor preacher said, um, well, how's what you're doing any different? And you know, uh, in the moment, I didn't want to admit to him that that actually struck me, but it did, and I began to ask that question myself. So here's the thing: um, Paul was in this same um, crisis, if you will, between the instructions of the written word and the message about Christ. That the the stronger biblical case from from the perspective of, of a prescriptive, you know, do this, don't do that, the stronger biblical case was for people to be circumcised. That, but Paul had to choose the proclamation about Jesus as the primary revelation of God and subordinate all that had been written for the long ages before Paul came on the scene um, he had to subordinate all of that underneath that, what I call the kerygma, what the Bible calls, you know, in the Greek, the preaching, the evangelion, the the gospel, and, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is, Jesus died according to, you know, for your sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised in the third day according to the scriptures. That's it. Uh, and so, I've counted in the NIV, that's about 26 words, um, that's the revelation of God. And as I've gone back through the New Testament, I've I've seen that that's oftentimes what they mean when they say the Word of God. And then I began to say, you know, we we like proof texts like uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, you know, um, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable, you know, etc. But it didn't dawn on me until I began to realize that it was the preaching of Christ that's the revelation, and that the Bible is there to support it, uh, confirm it, clarify it maybe, um, but it wasn't until I realized that that I realized that when Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3.16, he didn't include 2 Timothy 3.16 under the definition of scripture. <laughs> He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. And, and so, you know. And what does he say it's useful for? He says it's inspired for the for a purpose. Yeah.
0: And what is its purpose? What is the purpose of its inspiration?
1: Uh, what is According it? To Paul? Uh, instruction, training, correction. In righteousness. Um, in righteousness, yeah. So that He's the man of God long. may be complete, uh, fully equipped into every good work. So, yeah, I definitely think that, you know, he meant what he said. The problem is is that we don't hear the word helpful. We hear the word Essential. And there's a massive difference.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that that's uh, it's interesting that you bring that up from the restorationist viewpoint and kind of early American history and how that got baked into the Church of Christ experience that you're a part of. Because I, I feel like there's you know uh, similar echoes in uh, the deconstruction of the evangelical tradition that you know a lot of people are talking about right now. Um, you know, a lot of that is, is based on some of the similar assumptions that uh, the Bible or the, the scriptural collection that we call the Bible you know is the basis of our faith and that each you know each group is trying struggling to get the correct uh, you know dogma or doctrine uh, on uh, how to interpret those scriptures and that's what defines defines what it means to be uh, a believer or at least the evangelical um, I don't see a whole lot of difference there so um, you know based on what you learned how would you know what would you say to this time that we're we're living in because I think a lot of people are struggling with the same this same sense of "Mm," you know I was raised with these traditions to look at Scripture a certain way and now I feel like you know There's something bigger going on here than just textual literalism, you Mm -hmm. know, to just literally look at the the, individual scriptures and decide, well, this is what we need to do. There's something bigger going on. I think you alluded to that in the message of, you know, what was the gospel in Paul's time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that if we really want to deconstruct and be fair about it, that we're going to have to get back to, um, and, and maybe this is, might be hypocritical since most of what I've learned about the gospel was from the New Testament. But, but maybe we need to back up and say, okay, if, if a person is willing to accept that the core of the Christian message is simply the story about Christ, and, and not even everything, I, honestly, I, I don't think that if you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, that they don't start with Matthew 1-1. You know? They really do start with um, God has sent his Messiah. He died as God planned uh, for the sins of the people. He, he rose again, and, and now we're talking to you because of that. You're invited to to join his kingdom. I mean, they understood the implications of the word um, gospel, evangelion. They understood the job of a kerux, uh, the preacher, and that was to announce the ascendance of a new sovereign on the throne. So if, if you're willing to accept that the gospel is the announcement that Christ reigns, having died for our sins and rose again. If you're willing to accept that that's the revelation of God, uh, I, I think that we can take that template now and begin to look at Scripture in a new way. We, it's like what it seems to me, and, and I don't want to speak for other people, so I, maybe I'll just go with my own experience. But, but a common thread throughout, whether it was in the Baptist Church or in the Church of Christ, the common thread seems to be that the gospel is the way that you get into a relationship with God, and the Bible is the way that you maintain a relationship with God. Um, and that is false. That's erroneous. Um, and not only is it false and erroneous, it is dangerous, because there are no two people on this planet who understand even the New Testament alike. And so, if this is the way that we're supposed to live for God and be unified, um, it, that He, God's given us an impossibility. Uh, the beauty of the gospel is, is that it can be heard and understood even by a very small child. Um, and if we agree on those details, then we can be brothers and sisters. That it is a very small seed. Um, and I, I may have gone far afield from what you were asking, Alex. But I, I so here's what I would. Suggested somebody do is, is that rather than saying, what does the Bible say for me to do right now, practice asking, what are the implications of the gospel to my current circumstances? And, and if you'll go back to the New Testament, you'll find that that's what Paul did. I don't get the sense, and, and if you read the Quran, you'll see what it sounds like when somebody thinks they are writing inspiration from God. The Quran repeatedly has a thus saith Allah and there's this constant reminder and affirmation that these words are the words of Allah. You do not see that in the New Testament. What you see are very pedestrian correspondences between um, somebody that cares about this group of people and those people. Um, And Paul at times asks, you know, he even questions whether his advice is inspired. Like in First Corinthians seven, um, Luke does not claim inspiration. Quite the opposite, uh, you know. He says, "I've I've gone to a lot of trouble to research this and look it up." You know, um, the, the, the New Testament is not written with a this is the word of God. Uh, The New Testament presents itself as a word of God about the word of God, which had already been given and received by the church. And so you get things like in the book of Jude where it says, I wrote to you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered. You get things like in Hebrews where he says, uh, God who in various ways and at various times spoke to our forefathers through uh, his messengers or angels has in these last days spoken to us by his son has spoken by his Son. Um, And so um, we we encounter the New Testament as a book that's written Mm post-Revelation. It's a revelation about the Revelation. And so if we really want to deconstruct, we've got to deconstruct past the New Testament, which to me makes a lot of what's written there great advice but not holy... Requirement. I'm not going to say not holy writ. I, I do think it's inspired, but it's very much an incarnational inspiration in that um, it comes to us with human biases, cultural preconceptions, and we're going to have to see past that. And, I, and, and we can do that safely. You know, when I was abandoning the Church of Christ mindset, the warning that I got from all the old guard as I went literally through about 18 hours of inquisition at a church, and then probably another twelve to thirteen hours of inquisition from family. Um, in in all of that, it, there was always this warning that you're on a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. You know, where do you stop? And the, where you stop is with the confession, the gospel. I've not, I've not moved from that since 1999 or 98. I mean. So there, there is a jewel there. But uh, so when it comes to all the other issues, to me everything's negotiable, but Jesus, <laughs> uh, and and that's been true for the past 20 years. Hmm. So you've deconstructed a faith
0: system in which the Bible and particularly the New Testament is authoritative. Down to, and what you've deconstructed that, and what has been erected in its place is a faith. ...in which the gospel is authoritative. Yes. In traditional, in in evangelical Christianity, in Protestantism at least, we say, in all our doctrinal statements, we say that the New Testament is authoritative for faith and practice. Right. And you're deconstructing that. You've deconstructed that, and you've said it's the gospel that is authoritative for faith and practice.
1: Right. And so I can, Mm. therefore,
2: scripture is only authoritative as far as it reveals or describes the gospel.
1: But yes. it's not
2: prescriptive in the sense that it's going to give us you know, this, uh, this entire ethical response to every situation that we're
1: Right, it's, right. And because, because a lot of the instructions in the New Testament are frankly arbitrary and stupid from our perspective. Um, you know, the, the stuff about slavery, uh, the instructions about women, um, either God sees women as a lower order of creature, or Paul was somewhat of a misogynist, um, and we can talk about that in another one. But I'm saying that if if you commit to, to if you say that the New Testament is your standard, you you must take on board some things that are that don't seem consistent with the heart of God as I see it in the gospel. Uh, you know, and I, and I, let's take the abortion issue just as a, as a quick example. Um, if you want to make a biblical case for abortion being wrong or outside of God's will, um, the the evidence is very thin. You'll probably lose that debate uh, because Numbers chapter 5 and other references talk about miscarriage and and miscarriage is caused by another individual as incurring a fine but not life for life like murder. So that would tend to suggest that the person in, in utero is not a full human being as you and I are. That would tend to uphold Roe versus Wade. The gospel says that Jesus died for people, at you know, at their essence. That that there is something inherently value about valuable about a human life. Well, that would argue against abortion, um, and so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That we can use the Bible to justify things and to even prohibit you know prohibit things that might be kind and good and life giving because we're looking at a book that was written two thousand years ago and and was wildly progressive at that time but but I think that the gospel itself has moved society forward and if we tether the gospel to Paul's understanding of the gospel we'll probably do a disservice to God
0: we could say, couldn't we, that the New Testament is uh, authoritative in yielding is authoritative on the gospel the New Testament is, authori- is our authoritative source for the gospel but it's the gospel that is actually that actually functions authoritatively in the lives of Christians.
1: Yes, and and I would even I would say that the Old Testament bolsters the gospel more than the New. And that's what Paul meant exactly in his
0: passage in Timothy to mm-hmm. Timothy about the Old Testament.
1: Yes, and as he writes Second Corinthians chapter 3 where he talks about to this day uh, when Israel, when Moses is read a veil remains on the heart of Israel but when it shall turn to the Lord the veil is removed and they will see face to face. That's what happened to me with my Christ in You experience that was the box top. That all of these disparate rules became the picture of a human, of a, of a person. And p- I think Paul was writing autobiographically in Second Corinthians, chapter three, that for him, that meeting Christ on the road to Damascus was the box top experience, and so as he comments on the scripture, you know, he does not use the inductive study method. (laughs) You know, much of much of the way that he sees scripture would would probably fly in the face of a good old K. Arthur precept study, Um, but it it is a christological uh, view of. Of scripture and so as he looks for instance at the notion of uh, the man and the woman becoming one flesh there he sees a doctrine about the gospel that is powerful and rich and and I really think that we should spend a lot more time putting that Christological lens over what Paul called the scripture Genesis through uh, Malachi and what we'll find is one voice uh, I mean, shockingly clear picture of the Gospel embedded in stories about Bedouins and wives and wars and brotherhood betrayal. What we will find is that um, behind that, you know, as we put the uh, that little, I don't know if you guys had that when you were a kid, but they always had that decoder film, it was red, and you put it over the back of the cereal box and there was a message there you know, I, I I think it's really fitting that it's read, you know. I mean, it really, underneath the blood of Christ, what you find is, is that there's a message written there where these narratives, frankly, don't make sense sometimes.
2: Yeah, so that's that's an interesting point, because when you say, well, if you look back at the Old Testament, you really see that it's describing this gospel message. Um, you know, on one hand, that, that sounds surprising to me, and I, I imagine for a lot of people listening, because I think especially in the times that we live in, uh, people look at the Old Testament and they just see wanton brutality <laughs> uh, you know questions of of genocide and and God you know why and how is God you know uh, prescribing that you know these uh, these Jewish settlers should go and you know wipe out entire people groups and and so to to say you know, oh well, you know the, there, there's an overlay or, or a uh, narrative of the gospel within this history and these stories. Um, sounds like there's a lot there to unpack because at first I would be like, "What? you know <laughs> you know that, that'd be a surprising statement.: mm-hmm.
1: well I, I think that that what speaks to the authenticity of the gospel is, you know when, when humans go to start a new religion, what's the first thing they do? Um, I'll go and answer my question. Um, they write a book. So whether it's, you know, Muhammad who says, you know, and and his book was written over about 20 years on whatever he had available. Um, But, you know, Muhammad who comes back out of a cave and says, you know, God wants me to write a book, and he writes a book. Um, Or whether it's Joseph Smith who, you know, finds the plates there in upstate New York and translates the Reformed Egyptian into the Book of Mormon, or whether it's L. Ron Hubbard uh, and Dianetics, Anytime somebody wants to start a a belief system or a new religion, they write a book. And it seems that the uh, early propagators of the Christian system had no book to write because their book had already been written. When they went into the synagogue, they didn't say, God met me in a cave and I've written more scripture. God said, open the scroll you already have. Those people said... I want you to open the scroll. Open the scroll you already have. and And then they showed them Messiah in that. So to me, that that speaks to something uh, something transcendent that God can write a book and that his people can hold on to it for four hundred years. Um, and then the the insight into it comes later. and it's throughout the whole thing, across time and space and circumstance and genre that there's this one message that you can find in every uh, section of that body of writing, that kind of corpus. Mm-hmm. And I've likened it to if if the Rosetta Stone, um, you know, if, if in the um, Egyptian section of the Rosetta Stone, there was a prophecy about finding a stone that would allow you to understand Egyptian hieroglyphs.
2: Mm-hmm
1: that there's something encoded waiting to be found, and that I I think that would speak to um, some sort of intention, some sort of transcendence, transcendent mind, superintending the Rosetta Stone.
2: That calls to mind the the story, you know, where the disciples after Christ's death and resurrection, there were some disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and, you know, Jesus, unbeknownst to them, appears and begins, you know, it says expounding on all of the uh, you know what was the Jewish scriptures the law and the prophets and explaining to them in detail how all of this was a foreshadowing of of that Jesus would come and die and be resurrected and so in that sense that there is um, there was something that was there all along that nobody saw mm-hmm. until until Christ you know, came and was revealed and, and died and was resurrected. Suddenly, it's like those, the things that looked like one story took on a whole other meaning, and there was like this higher higher narrative or something like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe we need a whole other podcast just to talk about that. How do we approach, oh, yeah. you know, something like the Old Testament and look at it through the lens of of Christ? You know, I think of Paul where he says, I, you know... All I want to know is Christ in Him crucified. That's what I, I'm coming to preach. I don't mm-hmm. want to get into all these other details, but the, when I, you know, when we're coming to talk to people or we're approaching Scripture, that we're looking for the gospel story within Scripture and not some list of rules or you know exactly. <laughs> ethical responses to culture or you know, any of these mm-hmm. things that we tend
1: to do when we approach, uh, approach the Bible. Yeah. Well, and that, that mythical approach, uh, you know, if, if we came back, uh, I, I think someone could critique that mentality and say, oh, well, that's convenient, you know. You suddenly, you know, uh, this pattern recognition tendency that humans have, we've just suddenly done that, we've redacted the Old Testament, we've made it say something it never was meant to say. But the clues of, of some deeper meaning are on the surface. For instance, some people would say, well, you know, the, the, those scriptures were written uh, to a particular nation to legitimize their um, ownership of that particular section of dirt or um, to establish their priority um, and their superiority as, as a people. Uh, and and uh, I think a skeptical, skeptical, cynical view would say that, but you get to things like in Joshua 5 where Joshua meets his commander of the Lord's armies, and they're about to conquer the land. You know, they're about to go slaughter people. And, and Joshua meets this guy, his sword is drawn, and he says, Are you for us or our enemies? Now, if I were writing a tribal narrative about how uh, Israel had a right to this land, that guy would say, I am for you. But he says, Neither. And, and, and so that it suggests something bigger than what someone might see on the surface. And, and those kinds of examples are throughout. the uh, the scriptures, and so um, those clues are there on the surface, those breadcrumbs are there for us to realize that there's something deeper, and there always was.
0: So this idea you have, Nathan, that the gospel uh, yielded forth by the New Testament is uh, the faith. Yes. Is liberating, and I can... Uh, easily see how folks said to you, "Careful, that's a slippery slope."
1: Well, we were—I mean, we were thrown yeah. out of a church for saying it. So, first we closed the church down because they weren't—they weren't legalistic enough. And about five years later, we were thrown out of a church because we weren't legalistic enough. So that's a problem, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I blame Uriah for all of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have him now. Now he deserves the right okay, to defend yeah. himself on our podcast. He, he needs to
0: uh, come on here
1: and defend <laughs> himself. He knows.
0: Yeah. So, so you know, in future discussions, I think what we'll have to do is we'll have to um, we'll have to tease that out. You know, and the implications of this claim because I think in some ways this is what our podcast is about. Is this claim? I think that in different ways we're all making that. The gospel is the main thing, and that it's uh, it's 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 okay to deconstruct and necessary to deconstruct, a versions of the Christian faith that do not prioritize the gospel that mm-hmm. don't emerge from the gospel. But we're gonna have to talk about what is the gospel because yeah. there's not agreement on what is the God What the gospel is, uh, and then after that. Um, how does it play out when you have decided that the the faith once for all delivered to the saints is this message about Christ, the Lord? Uh, How does it really play out in the different decisions we have to make in our lives and in our churches and how to interact with with the world? Yeah,
2: I think that those are the questions people are wrestling with. Mm -hmm. You know, those that have grown up in the Christian tradition are wrestling with this (laughs) sense that... um, there's an inherent disconnect between you know what they think is right living and what they they see or presume is within maybe the bible um but you know what i I think with this you know thing that we're wrestling with and we're all trying to deconstruct is that the gospel message overlays scripture um but it is not synonymous with, with scripture and so that um we have to understand, you know, what the gospel message is, what that really entails, in order that we approach Scripture and approach our daily life with this lens that we can look through and be able to, you know, like you said, decode <laughs> how to how do we approach this? How do we approach Scripture in a way that we're not um, we're not uh, actually doing a disservice to the gospel. And doing a disservice to how we should live as followers of Christ.
1: Exactly. I mean, and and there is within the Bible itself, and that's why. I mean, it, I I find it very inauthentic, uh, dishonest for people to go back and and reinterpret their belief system or whatever based on cultural shifts. Um, but if those, uh, you know, if it this is a different thing to reflect on our belief in terms of. What's already there on its own terms. On its own terms, and so I think that while, all that I'm doing is I am applying Paul's approach to Scripture to Paul. <laughs> you know, so when Paul says in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters or counts for anything, all that matters is faith working through love. I have to then believe him. If I'm going to believe him, I'm going to have to then turn and and apply that to everything Paul said. And so I can say, well, then in Christ, neither elder leadership nor non-elder leadership accounts for anything. All that matters is faith working through love. You know, I have to turn and say... All the stuff that's divided us, you know, transubstantiation or non-transubstantiation, substantiation, you know, uh, baptism by immersion. Uh, I mean, we can just we can add everything. If faith working through love is the thing, then um, then it's the thing, you know. I mean, if Paul can, if Paul thought that the gospel cancels out the worldwide imperative of Genesis chapter 17. Then why does the gospel not cancel out the worldwide imperative of First Corinthians 11, where we started? This passage that says women should cover their heads. You know, you know, if if for Paul those those instructions from God and those really things that were essential to his contemporaries, if they took the place of of a, of a wonderful reminder of of something that's helpful um, and worth treasuring, so long as it's not counterproductive, if if that's the kind of plate that those instructions took, then we have to also say the things that he said have that same contingency, or what he said isn't true and we shouldn't follow it at all. And now <laughs> we're stuck.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we have our marching orders uh, for future discussions. So I think what we're going to try to do is flesh that out, and we'll circle back around to Alex and Kent and and the rest of their stories of of deconstruction as we have time. And I think that will get fleshed out as we try to tease out the implications of the gospel as authoritative, as the faith. I like it. Stay tuned for more. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.